after the service. I love our worship. Man, thank you, worship team. That's, that's awesome and amazing. Man, what a great song. Death was arrested. What a victorious song. And of course, we've been in this series called The Big Picture. And today we come to the end, the finale. Um, yeah, this is it. So we've had 10 weeks, I think, on this series. And we've kind of looked at the big story, the big picture that God's unfolding. But as we get to the end, I began to wonder, have you read or seen endings to shows, movies, books, whatever, and in watching those or seeing those, reading those, you thought, hmm, that was real disappointing. (laughs) Which ones? What what things have you seen that have just really been bad finales? How I Met Your Mother. Mother. Okay, what else? Don't look, hey, go back, don't don't put that up here. There we go. That's 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 my list. How I Met Your Mother was absolutely horrible because the entire, what, 10 seasons wasn't about How I Met Your Mother. It's How He Met Robin or whatever. So, yes, it was terrible. What else? Lost. Lost. Okay, I never watched Lost. Yeah. What made it so bad? It basically was a dream. Oh. Okay, so there's a lot of shows that kind of fall into that category that can be terrible endings because of that. Anybody, this is a 1980s show, uh, in my time, but I don't remember it. St. Elsewhere, anybody remember that, doc, like one of the doctor's shows? At the, I mean, it's like the show that gave Howie Mandel and Denzel Washington and some of these guys like their start. It was on NBC, I think. And at the finale, like the ending of the show was it was all made up. It was a kid holding a snow globe, and the hospital was in his snow globe. And it was like very much uh, panned as a finale. They thought that was terrible. What else? Sopranos. Sopranos, just sitting in the diner, right? Don't know how it ended. The door opened, and that was it. Yeah. I, just, I only saw the finale on that one. <laughs> that, 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 that last scene, only because... <laughs> I didn't see the whole episode. I only saw the end because people were like, this is terrible. <laughs> Anything else? Heartland, okay. What made that one so bad? Just wasn't a good ending, huh? Did it leave it unended, like unfinished? Okay, so possibly, but not. Um, go ahead and throw that slide up there, Jude. Here was my list. Uh, I threw some movies in there too. So, How I Met Your Mother's there. Do you see Superman at the top? That, anybody remember the original Superman movie? You remember how that one ended? Lois dies. He's all upset. So he's going to fix it by turning the world backwards. <laughs> Science evidently doesn't matter. Uh, Roseanne, the entire last season was a dream after they won the lottery. Um, Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, horrible. Why make that? Mo- the entire movie was terrible. Just leave it where it was. <laughs> It wasn't worth it. I have St. Elsewhere. Oh, and I was a Seinfeld fan. I think all life relates to Seinfeld. Worst finale ever. And I did throw Titanic up there, but Titanic is one where Liz and I just kind of had, she sent me a list and Titanic was on her best of list, but it made my worst of list because I look at the piece of wood that Rose was floating on and he would have fit. He didn't have to die. Jack could have been saved. Evidently, she didn't love him after all. Just throwing that out there. What about things that you've seen with good endings? What have you seen there? Cinderella. Cinderella. Okay, the Prince Charming story. You like that? Okay. What else? What was that? (laughs) I missed that one. What was it? Titanic. Titanic. (laughs) 
I told them you liked that one. It just wasn't my... What's interesting is Titanic, if you go on the internet and you look for like good and bad endings, it is on both lists. It's like some people say it's great. Some people say it's horrible. So you get to decide on that one. What'd you say? Sixth Sense. Oh, amazing ending. Pretty Woman, okay. Coco. I haven't seen Coco. Why is Coco ending a good one? Oh, it's a happy ending. So we like the happy endings, right? Um, here, put on my list. Here's the things I found that I would agree with. Uh, okay, the top, the top left, I want to qualify. It is the office when the office should have ended. We should not have had the last few seasons. That was just terrible. What else do we have up there? Anybody a MASH fan? That was like the 70s. MASH was like the highest rating finale of all time. Six Sense is up there. Inception is up there. Shawshank is up there. What is that one? Uh, I don't even know what that one is on the bottom left. Newhart. That is Newhart. That was a dream one that actually worked, I thought. So it did. And then Fresh Prince, I thought, had a great ending. So in that, what was that? Forrest Gump, great ending. Yes. So isn't it fun to think about that? But, but when you watch a show, like you get to the end of like How I Met Your Mother, I was just mad. I was just like, are you kidding me? This is ridiculous. I can't believe I've wasted time watching this, this whole time to find out the mother is in like what, three episodes and that's it. And then, you know, and so it leaves you frustrated, disappointed when you get to the ending and it doesn't, doesn't fulfill you. But when you get to the end of a good a movie book or whatever, it kind of leaves you feeling relieved, right? I mean, you're like, ah. Oh, Okay, kind of that sigh of relief. It's like, oh, that's good. Well, as we come to the end of the series called The Big Picture, we do come to the final chapter. And what a ride this has been. I hope you've seen that. It's been an incredible roller coaster ride. And like any good story, it began by setting up the story, showing us the main characters and describing this setting. God created and everything's good and humanity was the crowning achievement of God's creation. And in that one moment, everything is as God intends it to be, which is amazing. But then we see this plot begin to unfold, don't we? We see some conflict, and we see rebellion, and we find sin that comes in and destroys God's beautiful creation. And then we have a tension, and all good stories have tension, right? And there's tension here. There's good, and there's evil. There's beauty, and there's brokenness. And all along the journey of the Old Testament, I don't know about you, but as we, we look through that, you think, man, this is bad, and it can't get much worse, but it continues to get worse. Like every story we read just continues to get worse and worse and worse. There's more rebellion, more depravity, until you reach the end of the Old Testament, and you just kind of go, is this how it's going to be? And think for just a moment. You get to the end of the Old Testament, Malachi in our Bibles and, and in the Hebrew Scriptures, it's Chronicles, Second Chronicles. If that was the ending, how do you think that story would be? Would you be satisfied with the ending? You'd be looking for part two, wouldn't you? Fortunately for us, we did get that second part. We, we turn the page and we get to the New Testament and we see Jesus, which really is the early climax of the story. Finally, there's salvation, there's redemption. And he comes with this message about the kingdom of God. That was his primary message. The kingdom of God is here and now and not yet to come. And then in this moment of horrific cruelty and pain, Jesus dies, leaving those around him to wonder, did we miss it? How did we miss it so badly? And did they bet on the wrong Messiah? 
But three days later, you kind of have this second pinnacle of the story where Jesus rises from the dead, defeating death and sin and the grave and their celebration, only to be cut short because Jesus says, now I got to go. I'm leaving. And he makes this crazy statement that says, you know what? If, if I leave, it's going to actually be better for you. And everybody there is like, you're nuts, Jesus. I mean, that can't possibly be true. How could it be better if you go away? But he did, right before their eyes. I mean, think about that. Right before their eyes, he just lifted up into the clouds until they can't see him anymore. And in that moment, we look at it, and we're on this side of history, and we're like, yeah, what a great moment. Man, could you imagine being there? Could you imagine seeing Jesus ascended? Do you think you'd be excited? Yeah! No. Be incredibly disappointed. But then a few days later, the promise that Jesus told them about came to be. The promised Holy Spirit arrived and baptized all those who were followers of Jesus. And then you see this breakout of these pockets of Jesus communities that began to rise up called the church. And the church began to turn the world upside down and has been doing that for about 2,000 years. And let's not deceive ourselves. This has not been a smooth ride. Anybody ever ridden on a wooden roller coaster at a park before? And it's like, I don't know why they still make those. They're horrible. It's a bumpy roller coaster of a ride for the last 2,000 years, right? And even this past week in the United States with a midterm election that has been a bit of a moment maybe for many to leave wondering even before, during, where's God in all this? Where's God in all this? And even with shocking results that left every pundit with egg on their face, we are reminded once again that the outcomes of political elections are really less about who wins and loses and more about how the people of Jesus conduct themselves and what kingdom we are really about, whether the kingdoms of this world or the kingdom of Jesus. And they, to me, when I see these things happening around us, it's a grateful reminder that God is not limited by what his so-called followers do here in the U.S., but that God's movement is much bigger. It's much bigger than what's happening in this room. It's much bigger than what's happening in this state. The movement of God is global. And I think we need that reminder sometimes that God is doing amazing things in and around the world. And as we live in the now and the not yet of the kingdom, we look forward to how is this story actually going to end? How is this going to come about? Will it be like the disappointing endings we discussed earlier, or will it be the greatest finale that we've ever seen? But you know, before we get to the end, we do need to just stop, stop and pause for just a moment and remind ourselves about the way of the world right now. They ain't right. That's how we'd say it in the South. They ain't right. The reason we started this story with the creation is because we need to be reminded that what we see today, God had other plans. When God spoke and God created it all, he looked at his creation and he said, it is good. The Hebrew word there is kind of that breathing out, that satisfaction just, <sighs> yeah. And as I read this week, at this moment, the earth is cut off from the full life of heaven. And don't we know it? We see it all around us every day. Crime, 
selfishness, greed, poverty, hatred, war. I mean, we don't need those reminders, do we? We live in those reminders every day. And when we look around us knowing that God desires more, we probably live in this moment of frustration. I'm frustrated. How about you? We should be frustrated. We should be frustrated, discontent with how the world is because this is not God's plan. This is not God's desire. And we see the potential in something. I see the potential in something. And is there anything more frustrating than when you see the potential in something and you realize that it's not going to live up to the potential? Parents, sometimes with children, these things where we get frustrated and we think, why are you not applying yourself? Why are you not doing more? Why are you not? And we live in this moment of frustration. And the Apostle Paul actually writes about this. He describes it in his letter to the church at Rome. We have it in our Bibles in the book of Romans. Look at what Paul says. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You know, we could stop with that statement right there. What a power-packed statement. I consider that our present sufferings, yes, we're suffering presently. They're not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be not revealed around us. Did you catch that? But in us, man, can I get an amen on that one? Woo! For the creation... And now he moves from talking about us to creation. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration. It's not just us. It's God's creation that's also frustrated, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. What an image. Groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have yet, we wait for it patiently. What an image. Anybody ever been in a birthing suite? I have three times. I can attest to the groaning and the pain of childbirth. Three biological kids all birthed naturally by an amazing woman. Fortunately, the first two came quickly. The one in this room today did not. He was a little trouble back then. And based on the advice of a friend of hers who told her, no, it's going to be quick. Don't have an epidural. Um, My wife is an amazing woman. That's all I have to say. Groaning, pain, difficulty, you better believe it. And that's the same image Paul is using to describe where we sit today. And Paul is talking about not just the pain and the groaning, but on the other side of the pain and the groaning. What do we see? What do we have? Joy, absolute joy. And, you know, how else could we describe it? I mean, you're holding that newborn child and everything is just amazing. And you got tears of happiness and everything, you know. 
And the new birth, that's what Paul is talking about. This new birth that is to come, the new creation. That which we desperately desire. The new creation birthed from the old. And we know what we know and what we see and what we feel. The reality that as it is today isn't the way that it's always going to be. And we and all creation groan, waiting for that liberation from bondage. I don't know about you, but I'm waiting. Anybody else waiting? Anybody else ready? One author put it this week that I read. He said, the fallen but redeemed humanity will be transformed into the sinless image bearers that we were originally created to be. The fallen creation will give birth to a new creation in which there is no death, grief, crying, or pain. Anybody get excited about that? Man, me too. And seeing the brokenness around us is a constant daily reminder to come. It can depress us. It could get us down. But what it needs to do, it needs to be that reminder. It needs to be the thing that goes, oh, yeah, this isn't done. This isn't done. There's more to come. And in the final scene of the big picture, the yet-to-be-experienced part of the story What are we waiting for? This new creation, restoration, renewal. That's what God has promised. The reason for Paul's writing is to tell them and us, it's not over. God has not like said, I'm done. He's not washed his hands of this mess. He's still actively engaged in the world, working to set things right, to get things back to the way things should be. You see, the, the, the arc of the narrative, as it begins in Genesis and ends in Revelation, is God setting things right. God's creation becoming good once again. And, it, and we see this multiple times. It wasn't just like we see it in Revelation, but this is talked about throughout the entire New Testament. I mean, you look at Jesus and some of the things he said to his people and And he talks to him in this interesting exchange between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus says to him, he says, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. He's trying to give his disciples some hope. They're like, we followed you. What does this mean? What happens? And Jesus says, don't worry. Renewal is coming, and you'll be a part of it of that renewal. And when Jesus talks about the renewal of all things, there's a Greek word, it's a compound word, meaning birth again. Jesus is talking about in this moment about the new creation being reborn, and why wouldn't he? Because rebirth is some is a constant theme in how Jesus talked about it. Remember in John 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus? He says to him, what? You must be born again. That phrase has been so hijacked and twisted that we don't use it much today, but there's beauty in that to understand. And if Jesus is saying, you need to be born again, doesn't it track that as he looks at the creation that he made, he says, oh, but this is also going to be born again in something amazing. And then this this idea of renewal and restoration continues through the New Testament. We see it in in Acts chapter 3 in the Apostle Peter. He's speaking to a crowd after a man has been healed. And Peter says this. He says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his prophets to restore everything 
to restore what is back to its former state. The idea of what is to come, the way God would bring his story to a close, permeated their actions, their words, and their very lives. And then we see this in Revelation 21 and 22. I felt bad preaching on this today because I've done this like twice already this year. Evidently, there's a message for us here. John the Elder had this incredible opportunity where God pulls back the curtain and allows him to see things that normally humans wouldn't be able to see. Not to give him a timeline of events to come or for us to decipher, but to encourage churches that were enduring persecution and to remind them that God was still in control, that there was something better coming. And let's look again at Revelation 21. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write these things down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Did you notice what he said? I am making all things new. He didn't say, I'm making all new things. He said, I'm going to restore. I'm going to renew. I'm bringing it back to the way it's meant to be. And here's what's significant. is just as there was a cosmic impact when God created everything. Think back 10 weeks ago when we talked about creation. God spoke and there was order from the chaos. There was a cosmic impact there. There was a cosmic impact in the fall where sin began to destroy us and God's good creation. And in the end, there's going to be a cosmic impact when all things are redeemed, renewed, and restored with the glory of God. And what we've observed throughout the story, every week we see fulfillment here, the consummation of all things to come. In Genesis, God created all that is and created Eden, and we talked about how Eden was kind of a temple. What is a temple? A temple was a place where heaven meets earth. They kind of come together. And Eden was that temple where God interacted with his creation. But that was destroyed. And then in the Old Testament, we had the temple and the tabernacle. That place, a makeshift way for the presence of God to be among his people again. But a very poor version since it limited God to one time and place in a specific location. And in John chapter 1, we see another place where heaven meets earth in Jesus Christ. And all through the story, we see God with his unending desire to live among his people. And at the end of the story, it happens in the best way possible. Because as you continue to read through Revelation 21, you find there's a new garden in a new city. And there's no temple any longer needed, not necessary. Revelation 21, 22 says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Wow. Do you guys get what's happening here? Heaven and earth, 
Heaven, not streets of gold, place I go when I die. Heaven, the realm of God where God exists, this spiritual domain and earth and creation were brought together. Sin destroyed. And then since that time, there's been little overlap. And then Jesus comes and they come back together again. And in this final renewal and restoration, they're going to be right there together. No need of a temple. No need of a place to go and, and commune with God because God will be all around us. God will just be there with us. He will be permeating every square inch of his new creation. And what's even better now is unlike the Genesis account where we read about Adam and Eve and we think, oh, two people get to enjoy the presence of God. Guess what happens in the new creation? It's a story for every tribe and every nation and every tongue taking their place as co-rulers of God's beautiful restored creation. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And where in Genesis... After the fall, God needed to protect us and cut us off from the tree of life. That won't, be the, that won't be the case in the new creation. We will live and reign with God forever. And we get glimpses of how amazing this will be. I mentioned, you know, eternal life. Isn't that going to be amazing? Paul mentions renewed creation, no more groaning in childbirth. The prophet Isaiah talks about things like this, the wolf living with the lamb, the eyes of the blind being opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy, water gushing forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. There's no more sin, there's no more death, there's peace or shalom with God and others. Oh man, aren't you ready for peace with others? I love peace with God, but man, we live in a season where I'm just like, oh, peace with others. That would be so amazing. Living forever as the redeemed people of God in the new world, living, working, enjoying God and his creation, just as it was meant to be. And this is our ultimate hope. This is our ultimate hope. This is the, the way the story ends, at least part one. This is the way it ends. But until then, we're in this moment where creation groans like a woman in childbirth. But can I tell you something? The new creation is here, partially, right now, in us. Sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't. But we should sense the hints of it now and then. And we are invited to be the revealers of what is to come we're invited to be the revealers of the renewed and restored creation. We are invited to live as new, renewed creation people here and now. We don't live under the curse. We don't live under the fall. We live as new creation people. So I challenge us as new creation people, why do we continue to get sucked back into cursed living? Amen. We, what hope for there is, is there for the world? If we can't get this, if we can't get this right, if we can't move beyond the pettiness and the fall and the things we see in the world and us live as new creation people, 
to me. I, I think that's why we see the end of the story. I think that's why it's written down for us. You know, and we've so screwed that up. Go back and listen to the End is Near series because, I mean, we want to decipher this and go, oh, well, this is going to happen and this is going to happen and, oh, that means Jesus is doing this. Garbage. That's not. The curtain is pulled back for us to see the renewal of all things so that we will stop living as people under the curse, that we would be the hope in the world, that we would be little Jesuses living out as peacemakers, as the meek, as the servant leaders, not as the power hungry, not as the power grabbers, not as the people that have to step on others to get our way or do what we want to do, but as the people that model Jesus every day. Because the new creation, what is promised for us is all the world needs to see to know that Jesus is worth giving everything for, period. And we've got to get there. We've got to get there. So what do we do while we wait? That's the question, right? What do we do while we wait? We're caught in this tension. It's terrible tension. I get it. You get it. And we know that the kingdom is now and not yet. But what do we do? I think it's what I was just saying. We embody the good news of Jesus. We live as restored people. We are the place here and now where heaven meets earth through our lives until the time where God renews and restores all things. The new creation is being revealed all around us. It's revealed in us in how we steward the world and how we care for our fellow image bearers of God. And as we understand the renewal and the restoration of, of creation, we live not as escapists, okay? Our goal is not God get me out of here. Okay? and get me into heaven. That escapist or destruction mentality might lead us to give up on the world, to let the evil that exists here win and take over. But we don't live that way. We are the incarnational witness of Jesus in the world today. And let me tell you, we're not trying to get people into heaven. We're trying to get heaven into people. Okay, we're not. Make sure we understand what we're saying. Our goal is not to get people into heaven. How many times have we heard that message? Our goal is to get heaven into people. When will this happen? I don't know. I honestly don't care. I mean, I do care, but I don't care. Because it doesn't change how I'm going to live tomorrow. If it happens tomorrow, if it happens a hundred years after I'm dead or a thousand, it doesn't matter. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, so we need to stop that cosmic timeline trying to look in plot events. As I said, John didn't write Revelation for that. As one author put it, it said, putting our attention on historical events and charts to map out the end of days is like being obsessed with the nature, strength, and frequency of the birth pangs when we should be thinking about the baby. Yeah. Okay. Ooh, you like that, don't you? Yeah. I did too. Yeah. What is our focus? And today, as I said, what we're really talking about is the end of part one. And you're maybe thinking, well, what's part two? That's the part of eternity with God. The story closes, and it's just the beginning. <laughs> I don't even know that my mind can fully comprehend that. Because really what we're talking about is not life after death. It's life after life after death. And that story is still yet to be written. 
And so there you have it. That's the big picture. The Bible Project, I've talked about them a lot. If you're not on their website, you really should be. It's amazing. And here's the way they put it. They say the big picture. It's an epic story of God and his creation of blessing, temptation, sin, exile, and salvation. And even when we read the entire book of Revelation, we wouldn't have all the answers, and that's okay. John's goal wasn't to answer all our questions, but to give us hope and confidence in what is still waiting to unfold in the big picture. The hope that the kingdom of God and our kingdom, where we live, will one day be one. And all things made new, death replaced with life. And as was God's intention in the beginning, every nation blessed through the power and the resurrection of Jesus and God living with his people once again. Here's what the Bible Project says on their blog. It says, John did not write this book as a secret code to decipher the timetable of events or figure out exactly what happens to you after you die. It's a symbolic vision that brought hope and challenge to the seven first century churches and every generation of Christians. It reveals history's pattern and God's promise that every human kingdom eventually becomes Babylon and must be resisted in the power of the slain lamb. But there's a promise that Jesus, who loved and died for this world, will not let Babylon and all the evil of this world go unchecked. One day, Jesus will return to remove evil from his good world and make all things new, including his people. And that is a promise that should motivate faithfulness in every generation of God's people until the king returns. Let's pray.